Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> Pretty good. All right. Uh, let's go Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We'll be hanging out there this morning. So I am um, fascinated by movements, um, by, by how you kind of move large groups of people to action, right? Like think about Crocs, right? Like someone had like this like idea, let's get like hundreds of thousands of people to wear the ugliest shoes on the planet. And they, and they did it, right? It's fascinating how you can possibly do that, right? But I think that one of the most fascinating case studies on, on how to move large groups of people to action was Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Because regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, um, it's a fascinating case study. Um, because Obama didn't run on a slogan like most people do. Obama ran on one word. One word, and that word was hope. Hope. That one word moved millions of people to action, and, and, and he won, um, in modern-day terms, by a landslide. Now, what I think is so interesting about this word is, like what, like, what about that word is so powerful? What about that word, hope, moves people to action? Well, it's the fact that hope is the idea that someone or something has the power to change my current reality. That, that, that someone or something has the power to make tomorrow better than today. And, and what his campaign tapped into was this idea that on some level, we all have moments in our life where we just want things to change. I just don't want to be where I am today forever. I, I want something or someone to come along and change my current reality for the better. And it was a very powerful, powerful idea. Because the reality is that you and I, we devote ourselves to whatever we think it is has the power to change our current circumstances, right? So um, take grades, for instance, right? The semester's coming to an end. Uh, I know some of you guys, like I, like, I just want my grades to change. That's my current reality. I want my grades to change. And so we put our hope in whatever we think can change that. So if it's studying more or tutoring or paying a beta to take your test for you, right? Like we think of, man, what can I do? Like, like, what, like where's my hope found, right? Or some of us, we, we find ourselves in places where we're just a lot more alone than we ever thought that we would be. That we don't feel known, we don't feel seen, and so we begin to place our hope in what we think can change that. Maybe it's new friends. Maybe it's transferring schools. Maybe if I, if, if, if I was at that school, then I would have better friends. Or maybe it's just a relationship. If, if I could be in a relationship with somebody who sees me, and knows me and loves me unconditionally, maybe that would change how alone that I feel. Right? Like, we, like we, we place our hope in whatever it is that we think can change our current reality. But what I think is interesting for us as followers of Christ is that in our text today, Paul is going to, to let us know that our God, one of his titles is that our God is the God of hope, a.k.a. our God is the God who has the power to change your current reality. That our God is the God who has the power to make tomorrow better than today. But if we're being honest, at least if I'm being honest, 
when I find myself in seemingly hopeless situations, God is not the first one I run to. I run to a host of other things thinking that 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 actually has the power to change when our God is saying, no, no, I have the power. I have the power to change and to move in your life and to bring you out of what seems hopeless because that's who I am. I am the God of hope. So what would happen if, if we actually believed that our God had that type, type of power? Because let's, let's be honest, like coming to church is a very lame hobby if we don't believe that God has the power to change our lives. This is a very lame gathering if we don't truly believe that our God has the power to take our current circumstances and, and do something with that in a really powerful way. So what I want to do today is very simple. I want to look at why our God is the God of hope. And then I want us to talk about what that would actually mean if we believed it. What that would actually do for our lives if we believed that our God was the God of hope. So that's where we're going today. So let me start off by just kind of walking us through why we know that our God is the God of hope. Um, Our God is the God of hope for for two specific um, reasons. The first is this, is that he keeps his promises. Our God is the God of hope because he keeps his promises. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. He says, for I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. All right, let me explain what Paul is saying here. Um, Paul is starting off by saying when when, when Jesus came, Jesus came for a couple reasons, and one of those reasons is because he came to to prove that God is faithful, that, that when God says something, God does what he says, God keeps his word, God keeps his promises. And, and, and the reason we know is because God made some bold promises to the forefathers of the people of Israel, to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and, and, and all, all those names that you may or may not have heard of along the way. He said that God keeps his promises because he made some bold promises. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every single promise. Right, so let me give you a couple examples. One of these promises uh, is in uh, Genesis 3. Um, after the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned and, and death and sin entered the world, God, God goes to the uh, serpent and, and he, he makes this curse to the serpent, but then he gives this promise to the people of Israel. It says, it, it says this. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So, What God is saying is that there will be a descendant. There will be an offspring. There will be someone in the line of this woman. And when he shows up, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. Granted, he's going to get a shot in. The serpent's going to strike his heel. He is going to get a shot in there. But ultimately, this descendant will crush the head once and for all. All A few chapters later, God goes to this guy named Abram, who um, is later called Abraham. And he makes him this phenomenal promise. It says this in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And this is huge. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, there will be someone in your family line. There will be a descendant that comes from your line, and he will bless every single person on the face of the earth. That's a huge promise. 
That, that one person in a family line can, can bless every single person on the face of the earth. He says, like, that's what I'm going to do for your family. Someone is going to come and you will bless the entire earth, right? And this person, um, over the course of uh, Israelites' history, became known as the, the Messiah. That was this title that was given to him, right? This person who would come and crush the head, this person who would come and bless the world was this Messiah. And all the prophets began to talk about who this Messiah would be, what he would do, what he would be like. And, and there's all these prophecies of, of who he would be and what he would come to do. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. Right, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, so each Gospel, if you've ever wondered why there's four different Gospels, and they say the same thing, but kind of say different stories, um, each Gospel was written to tell the story of Christ, but from a different perspective. And Matthew's Gospel specifically is written to a Jewish audience to help them understand that this is, in fact, the Messiah. This is the one that God had promised long before. And so if you read Matthew, oftentimes he'll, he'll tell a story and then finish by saying, and thus says, or this, this was done to thus fulfill the prophet of Isaiah. He, he says, this is the promises of God fulfilled. And so what Paul is trying to say in this text is, hey, um, God made some very bold promises to the people of Israel. And look, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. Why? Because when God makes a promise, when God speaks, he keeps his word. And there should be hope for us knowing that our God keeps his promises. Now, let's talk about us for a second. Because it's easy to see that and think, okay, yeah, God kept his promises to them. That's, that's great, but, but what about us? What about now? What about in 2021 when I feel hopeless? What kind of, I mean, does God still keep his promises? And the answer is yes. And it's why we should be just bathing ourselves in scripture, just, just spending all this time in the world because God has some bold promises to us as well. Some bold, bold promises um, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, Psalm 147.3 says this. It says that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Have you ever had your heart broken before? It sucks. I admittedly lean in the emo direction. Um, and so I just feel heartbreak on, I think, a larger scale than most people. Uh, I got broken up with in college, and I wrote an entire, like, album about it. I was in this band, and I was like, oh, right? Um, uh, it's, it's on iTunes if you ever want your ears to bleed. It's a really <laughs> phenomenal thing. Um, but, like, there are, like, moments, of, like, I mean, if you've been heartbroken before, like, if someone, like, just broke your heart, like, as silly as that might sound, like, let's be real, like, that's, it hurts. And if you've walked through a bad breakup, there are moments in time when it feels like it's going to be that way forever. And you just feel hopeless. If someone betrays you, if someone cheated on you, if someone has done something to wound you and it just broke your heart and it feels like it's going to be that way forever, our God says it's not. Our God says, I love you and I heal the brokenhearted. Whatever wounds you may have, I bind up your wounds. And that is a beautiful promise of our God that in the midst of a hopeless situation, we get to rest in and believe in. Or what about this? In, in James uh, 1, he says this. He says, uh, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Another uh, way to to say steadfastness is the word endurance. And what James is saying is that, hey, when, when you encounter difficult times, 
when you encounter hardship, when you encounter trials and difficulties, man, count it joy because God is doing something. Your pain is never lacking purpose. It's producing endurance. It's producing grit. It's producing something within you that makes you more mature, that makes you more complete. I've, uh, I've had the joy to walk alongside college students for six years now. And I've gotten to hear just some heartbreaking stories. Stories of um, abuse. Stories of alcoholic parents. Um, stories of loss. Of tragedy, of grease, grief, uh, of chronic disease, of sickness. I've heard stories that y'all have experienced that, that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. But I have to say that when I talk to people that have encountered really difficult things, there's usually a level of grit and a level of maturity that stands out. Because God promises to never allow our pain to, to, to be purposeless. That God is always using our pain in purposeful ways to help us grow and mature and to endure. There's a level of endurance that comes when we just get to experience these things. It's hard, it's difficult, yet there's this promise of God that in the midst of these things, I know that God is doing something. Or let me show you my favorite promise in, in all of Scripture. It's in uh, Revelation 21. It says this. So then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is my favorite part. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The ultimate promise of Scripture is that with all the hopelessness that we experience on this planet, there's coming a day because of what Christ has done where Christ will come and return and he will make all things new. And there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or heartache. And we get to dwell with God. He will be living among us and, and there is just peace. That is a promise that God has made to us. And so I say all of that to say this that one of the reasons why we turn to our God in the midst of a hopeless situation, why he is the God of hope, is because when he speaks, anything that he says comes true. Because our God keeps his promises. The question is, do you know what his promises are? We cannot cling to the promises of God. We cannot rest in the promises of God if we don't know what his promises are. And so and we should be in the word, um, just, just digging through it because there are so many beautiful, profound promises that God makes to us. And so in those hopeless moments, we, we cling to the promises of God because we know that his promises are true. The God keeps his word. So that's, that's the first reason why our God is the God of hope. But here's the second. Because God does not treat us the way that we deserve to be treated. Our God is the God of hope because he does not treat us the way that we deserve to be 
treated. Let me read to you uh, what Paul says in verse 9. He goes on to say, and in order that, so, so verse 8, that, that, that Christ came to, to prove that God keeps his word, and in order that the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, it will come, or in him will the Gentiles hope. All right, that was a lot of kind of, wait, what's happening here? Let me explain what Paul is saying and then what that means for us. Um, the people of Israel, right, were considered God's chosen people. And that meant, historically, that, that salvation belonged to them and them alone, right? That, that, that to be in right relationship with God, to have salvation, meant that you had to belong to the chosen family of God. But when Jesus came on the scene, when he died and came back to life, Jesus declared that salvation was not just for the Jews, it was for everyone that had a heartbeat. It was for every single person on the face of the planet. In fact, when he gave his, his kind of final charge, he said, hey, go make disciples of all nations, of all people. It was this revolutionary, mind-blowing concept that, that not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, those that didn't belong to the family of God, could be brought in, could be saved. Like the mercy of God to bring people in was mind-boggling. In fact, like Jesus' own disciples didn't quite understand the concept because it was so radical. In fact, there's this... Um, really hilarious scene in Acts 10 where uh, several years after Jesus said, hey, go make disciples of all people, um, none of his disciples had ever actually stepped foot into a Gentile's house, like years after the fact. And so by this kind of uh, crazy set of circumstances, Peter ends up in a Gentile's house and he preaches and, and everyone gets saved. And, and, and look at how the people reacted. Uh, in, in, in Acts 10 verse 44, it says this. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, uh, the Jewish folks who had come with him were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Right, this is like almost a decade after Jesus ascended and all these guys are like, what? Like the Gentiles can get saved? The Gentiles can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Like what is happening like, like, it's shocking. Why? Because God is merciful. Because in their minds, there's no category for how God could bring these people into the family of God. And that's what's so beautiful about the gospel. Because the gospel is not the story that, that we've somehow convinced God to like us because we're nailing it. It's the story that God loves you despite you. It's the fact that you and I do not deserve relationship with God, yet we get it. You and I do not deserve to be called sons and daughters, but that's our name because our God is merciful. Because he says, I do not treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. David uh, in the Psalms, I think, says it beautifully. Um, he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. What David is saying is that our God does not function like karma. Right? Karma says that you get what you deserve, what goes around comes around, but what David is saying, no, 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 our God is merciful. 
our God is merciful. He does not treat you the way that you deserve to, to be treated. He shows you mercy. Now, what does it have to do with our God being a God of hope? I think that oftentimes, some of the hopeless situations that we find ourselves in are because we know exactly what we deserve. And that's terrifying. For some of us, we might be in a place where we feel hopeless because we made a decision in a weak moment and now we're paying the consequences and it feels like you're going to pay the consequences forever. And you know that, like, it's on me. I did it. It's going to feel like this forever. Or maybe you, you did something to break a relationship. You think, this person will never look at me the same. And I get it, because it's my fault. What mercy means, the idea that God doesn't treat us the way that we deserve to be treated, is that God may be kind to you in ways that you do not deserve. Is that despite our sin, despite our own actions, God may show up on the scene and mend a relationship that you don't deserve to have mended, because he's kind means that God might restore a situation that seems like it cannot be restored because God is kind, because he is merciful. It means that God may do something in your life that you don't deserve because that's who God is. So if we believe that God is the God of hope, in the moments in time when we just feel like we're stuck, there's no way out, it's going to be like this forever, and it's my fault, I, did, I brought this upon myself. If we understand the character and the nature of God, it should lead us to fall before our God and say, God, will you just be merciful to me? God, I don't deserve this. But God, will you be merciful to me? Because we know that God is merciful because of our relationship with Jesus. Again, you and I do not deserve a right relationship with God, but we get it because that's how our God works. He's merciful. So, we know that our God is a God of hope because he keeps his word and because he doesn't treat us the way that we deserve to be treated. He's kind. He is merciful. Now, what do we do with this? Um, simply put, I think we believe it. Um, sometimes the application is to go and do, and sometimes the application is to simply believe that this is true. And I think this is one of those times what we need to do is we need to simply understand who our God is, understand that this is how he operates, and just believe it. Now let me show you what happens when we actually uh, believe this. But look at what Paul says next in verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul says that when we believe that God truly is the God of hope, when we truly believe that he is who he says he is, that he keeps his word, that he is merciful to us, what happens is that we are filled with hope, but we're also filled with joy and with peace. Have you ever met somebody who has kind of been in a, a really hopeless situation and they just seem unshakable? Like they just seem unflappable. It, it kind of freaks us out a little bit. It kind of concerns us. Because we put ourselves in their shoes and think, man, I would be losing my mind. I would not be okay. I would not be this calm. I would not be this p- 
peaceful. I, like, that's just not who I would be. Like, I would be freaking out. And so we begin to think, man, like, maybe there's something wrong with you. Like, maybe you don't understand the severity of what's happening. Like, this is a hopeless situation. Why do we function like that? Because joy and peace are foreign concepts to hopeless people. When we find ourselves in a hopeless situation, joy and peace are usually not present. But when we understand that we serve the God of hope, that we serve the God that has the power to change our circumstances in a moment, that we serve the God that has the power to, to do all sorts of things because he fulfills his promises to us, that he is merciful in ways that we do not deserve, when we understand that that's who we serve, what comes next is joy and peace. It doesn't take away the fact that you're in the middle of something difficult. This isn't some sort of prosperity gospel, believe in God, trust in God, and all your problems go away. No, it means that in the midst of difficulties, we have joy and we have peace because we know who our God is. We trust that our God truly is the God of hope. I think one of the most hopeless days that's ever happened was the day that they laid Jesus in the tomb. Because if you think about the rise of Jesus, it was, it was profound. Right? This obscure carpenter shows up on the scene. He's turning water into wine. He's healing people. He's casting out de- demons. He's, he's teaching with authority. He's, he's doing miracles. Like nature obeys him. I mean, this dude is next level. Word's starting to spread, and people are starting to connect the dots, and they think this is the Messiah. This is the pe- this is the person that has been promised for hundreds and thou- for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is him. This this is the Messiah. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and everyone celebrates, and they're waving palm branches, and they're singing Hosanna in the highest. This is our King, and everyone's ready for revolution. This is the guy that's going to come, and he's going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem, and it's going to be amazing, and, and, and we're all going to have joy and peace, and we're, we're going to flourish because, like, occupation is, is, is gone. Like, this is our king. This is Jesus. And then he dies. And then literally everyone turns their back on him. And he dies in the most barbaric, humiliating way imaginable. And they take him down off of this cross and they carry the, him to this tomb and they lay him down in the tomb. And I just think about what it was like to walk away from that. Peter and James and John and the guys that have been following him for so long walk away and heads hung low and they think, what, oh, what now? Like, what just happened? He's supposed to be king. They're walking and they're trying to figure out what to do next and they think, man, are the guys that just killed him, are they going to come for us? Are we going to die that same death? Like, well, like, what do we do now? I can't imagine a more hopeless moment on the face of the planet. But then in three days, God kept his promise. In three days, everything changed. Three days later, Jesus victoriously rose from the grave and he crushed the head of the serpent. 
that in a moment salvation was available to all and all the nations of the earth. Every family, every person on the face of the planet was blessed because of Jesus. In a moment, God was merciful to the whole world. The reality is that is who our God is. That our God in a moment has the power to change the most hopeless of circumstances. That in a moment we go from mourning and grieving and doubt to joyous celebration. The God that rose Jesus from the grave is still the same God that is ruling and reigning. He hasn't changed. His ability to change your circumstances, to make tomorrow better than today, that has not changed. So my prayer in all of this is that we are people that understand how profound it is that our God is a God of hope. And that when you find yourself in a moment where you've, you've just lost all hope, you feel stuck, it feels like there is no way out, like it's going to be like this forever, that you remember that our God is merciful. That our God keeps his word, that he keeps his promises. May we be people who stop and rest in that beautiful truth because he really is the God of hope. Let me pray. Father, you are, um, God, you are unlike anything. In a world where we grasp for anything that has power, anything that can change uh, what we don't like about where we are in our lives, God. Uh, you are truly the God of hope. You are the only one that can change where we are or what is happening in our lives. And so, Father, it's not lost on me that there's probably some pretty hopeless uh, situations in this room. There are some people sitting in this room that feel, that feel stuck like there's no way out. They feel like it's going to be like this forever. God, will you draw near to them? God, will you show them that you are the God of hope? May that be not just something that we understand intellectually, but may that, that be something that, that resonates with us, that, that sinks into our hearts, that we have joy and peace as we abound in hope because we know who you are and who we serve. God, will you give us hope today? We love you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.